Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. Thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host, Patrick from Pull String Press for this great studio. Good morning, Patrick. Yeah, good morning, Mark. Patrick, I'd like you to meet our guest, uh, Dr. Roger Dunham. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you said as we were walking in, you've lived here in the 805 for five years. Uh, 45 years. 45. I didn't hear the four. <laughs> 45. A bit of a dramatic difference. <laughs> yeah, a, l- a little bit. I, I I think you have me beat. I moved here in Fiesta Weekend, 1972. Yeah. yeah. We came up here uh, right after finishing medical training and residency training. Where was that? Down at uh, USCLA County uh, Medical School at UCLA Medical School, and then Huntington Memorial Hospital for Internal Medicine, and I finished that up in 1978. Came up here and have been practicing medicine here for 40 years now until I retired three years ago. And uh, since you retired, you've been writing. Well, I've been writing all the way through from the very beginning. Ah. <laughs> And so you have a new book out. Well, I have just released the Surviving Mortality book about four months ago. I have another one coming down the line. And two other books uh, released back when I was practicing medicine full-time. Surviving Mortality was the culmination of all of those years of practice. But Final Diagnosis came out in the uh, 1990s. And... Spy Sub, which was a true story of our nuclear submarine. I served aboard uh, covert activities in the Pacific Ocean, came out in the 1990s as well. So this is uh, three books published, one more coming. You were on a submarine? Yeah, yeah. Let's just forget all the other things (laughs) I wanted to talk about. Well, you've already written about that, so you can actually talk about that. Uh, Was this um, right out of college or before college? No, I got kicked out of junior college. As one does. With an F minus grade point average. <laughs> can you and get it? I guess you can get it. I, I didn't know you could get kicked out of junior college, <laughs> but they kicked me out. And uh, my father said, you have a military obligation. And so I went down to, uh, I was a pilot at that time. I've been flying since I was 14. So I wanted to fly jets for the Air Force. I went into the Air Force. And I uh, told him I'd like to fly their jets. And he said, uh, how much college do you have? Uh-oh. <laughs> and uh, that interview came to a very <laughs> quick halt. And he pointed across the hall where a Navy chief was sitting. And he said, they have jets also. So I went over to the Navy. And I said, I'd like to fly Navy jets. Is that possible? And three years of intense training later, I was a nuclear reactor operator on a submarine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> For another three years. So six years. And, and where was the tour of duty? Every, anywhere was, there was water. Well, when I finished the training, which was all over the United States, I ended up being assigned to a mysterious submarine out of Pearl Harbor called the USS Halibut. And nobody ever heard of the Halibut. I asked around. It's not a prestigious name. It's not like, you know, normally yeah, they're named for. It's an exciting name that kind of revs you up a little bit, doesn't <laughs> it? The, uh, Halibut. Uh, 
we say we're doing this for the halibut. Yeah, of course. That was the yes. uh, commentaries we'd make uh, repeatedly on the long, 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 long patrols. Um, nobody in submarine school knew what the halibut did. And uh, when I got out there, nobody on the halibut would tell me what it was doing or what it was going to do. No kidding. <clears throat> Even once you're in the ha hatches closed, you still don't know the mission. No, we had no idea about the mission. Uh, the mission was extremely intense, uh, extremely secret, and uh, we had uh, a tremendous amount of pressure on us to make a system that was newly evolving in espionage, underwater espionage, to bring it to the benefit of the United States. So uh, it took a year or so of training to be able to run the nuclear reactor on the submarine. Then I sat in the interim with the other nukes, as they called us. We all ran the reactor, the turbogenerators, the propulsion turbines. Uh, we kept everything going, and we had no clues to what we were doing or where we were going. And when we finally, after great challenge and uh, many, many difficulties for the crew uh, because of the pressure and with the Soviets looking for us and the sounding grenades going off with them searching to find us, not wanting us to be where we were and doing what we were doing. We finally found success. And the way that came to all of us was the captain making an announcement. We have finally achieved success. We have finally found what we were looking for and now we've got it. And his voice was shaking with his excitement. Wow. And we all cheered and not a one of us had a clue as to what, what it was we had found. Well, and it, to this day, to, for about 25 years later is when I first went, after I left the Navy, after I went through medical school, and uh, William Broad of the New York Times published a front page story about the USS Halibut finding a Russian submarine at the bottom of the sea and described our submarine quite interestingly uh, and ended up with uh, no information about what our crew had gone through. Right because uh, we had uh, tremendous, we lost a man overboard and went through great challenge to try to get him back. We had another man become psychotic and was in a straitjacket for oh, wow. several weeks. Wow. Uh, we had uh, tremendous pressures on us from uh, flooding. We almost went down three times. Mm -hmm. I was blown out of my rack by one flooding event from water flying. How old were you? Uh, I was 19 when I joined. Wow. I got out when I was 25. So when it was all done, and then uh, the story had come out, I wrote the Spy Sub book. Oh, because, right. And Got I had it. no agent, so I, I didn't know really how to get it out there. So I called the Naval Institute Press and talked to <clears throat> the president, Dr. Wilderson, who was in charge of it. Uh, and nobody just talks to him. I called and said, who is, who is in charge? And they said, well, that would be Dr. Wilderson. I said, well, this is Dr. Dunham. Would you connect me with Dr. Wilderson? And he answered gruffly, uh, Dr. Wilderson. And I said, well, this is Roger Dunham. And I know the Naval Institute Press has done well with The Hunt for Red October. But I've written a book that tells the true story of what uh, dealing with the Soviets in a submarine is all about. And he said, well, I'd like to see the manuscript. So I sent him the manuscript, which had all the information that what we had done, what the, happened with the crew, what our submarine had done, and the final chapter that was the final successful conclusion. Uh, two days later, I had a call from the Pentagon. Wow. From the deep submergence branch of men who told me 
we'd like to come out and talk with you about this book because you wow. cannot publish this book. Wow. <laughs> Ouch. So wow. I said, well, how many of you are there? And he said, four of us are coming out and we'll be there tomorrow. And I said, wow. well, I need to get my attorney. And he, they said, no attorney will be allowed. So wow. the next day they arrived at my, the medical building on Upper State Street and marched me up to the second floor, put me in a room for about five and a half hours where we discussed all of the details of my book. Uh, one of the men got a little bit choked up as he was telling me how his submarine that he was the captain of had lost a man without the successful conclusion that we had been fortunate enough to have with a man that we had lost. Uh, they became sympathetic to my desire to publish the story about the men and what we went through and my willingness to remove everything that had any uh, secret component that would reveal uh, submarine secrets to the public. And so we, we made a few alterations here and there in the book, but they let me keep the story complete with the exception of the final chapter, which got removed, <laughs> which oh. was the most difficult part of it was taking that out. Uh. So there was a final chapter that, uh, because it descri described the uh, outcome of what we had done. So when it was all said and done, the book Spy Sub was released. It was approved by Admiral, um, uh, what is it, Wilkinson from the... Uh, uh, submarine deep submergence people in the Pentagon and it came out with the Navy's blessing uh, because it told the story of heroics of these sure, men sure. and uh, they're having accomplished the impossible so it did well it's still selling along with final diagnosis and uh, and the surviving mortality books did because um, you would say you didn't know and I'm thinking of our listener right now is thinking that maybe they have a book or two in them and like you didn't know anything about that, right? Like how you do that. And then so you say, well, I'm going to call the head of the Navy Press. Yeah. And did they publish the book? They published the book. And they published the they book. They published the book, but it had to get through there. The board of directors were of the Naval Institute Press are all line naval officers. Mm -hmm. And they passed mm -hmm. the manuscript around and they said, oh, my God, this is the halibut. This is not going to come out. And then that went down to the Pentagon, and then I got the call, and out they came. So that was that. Was that uh, just it, it was a kind of a thing that I think if there's anything to go out to authors who want to do something with their books that are being created from their heart and soul, I guess, is to make every effort you can, seek every channel you can find, do not worry about protocol, step over the protocol, step around the protocol, and find the pathway that takes you to success. Uh, the first book, Final Diagnosis, I had a patient who was a publicist who got me to a agent who got very excited about the book, and the book then was published by Penguin Press. Oh. The agent was not reliable, and that relationship didn't continue. The third book, Surviving Mortality, came 20 years later when everything is digital, the, uh, everything is computerized. Uh, the agents themselves are receiving probably a thousand books a day from everybody who's writing no books. No kidding. It's just completely an inundation thing. The publishing houses which rely on the agents to supply them with vetted material are uh, challenged also because they cannot open their doors to people coming directly to them. They rely on the agents, all of whom are overwhelmed. So how do you penetrate through all of that? And you end up creating a book that can be generated through the 
Ingram Spark system or through the Create Space system, where you can fairly easily in a very short period of time send in the manuscript and create the cover. And next thing you know, there's a book there. And next thing you know, it's on Amazon with a note that it'll be delivered in your mailbox in the next two days upon order. So there are not a lot of printed books everywhere, but as soon as the order is made, the book is immediately printed, immediately. Like a one-off? One-off. No kidding. print-on-demand. So they don't have any of the costs of storing books sure. or the overhead costs of bookstores. Well, at the same time, I wanted to support our local bookstore, Chaucer Bookstore, which is a fabulous bookstore, it and it's one it of the survivors indeed. of the yeah. decimation of bookstores in Santa Barbara. It's the only one, isn't it? It's oh, except for um, Book Den. Book, book Den. The Book Den and then also Mesa Books. Okay. And there's one in Montecito. Yeah. But uh, I know the, uh, the owner of the of Chaucer's and I ended up with conversations with her and she agreed to a book signing. It's not something that makes them a lot of income, I don't think. No. But um, she was very, very nice and very helpful and she ended up uh, bringing together a nice book signing that helped kind of launch the book. Since the Surviving Mortality book is about Santa Barbara patients, it's a 40-year saga of Santa Barbara patients who are individually facing their own mortality coming down a pathway straight at them and how they do what they do and how they can have things go much better for them if they are in a certain frame of reference which the book outlines compared to those who are not. So they're impending and and usually the outcome being their mortality is something that's much easier for them and their family than would otherwise be the case. I've uh, been quoted, I heard this and it made a lot of sense that I have more yesterdays than I have tomorrows. Uh, and I'm looking at a birthday, hit, you know, hitting 65 and, and feeling like I'm 25, but uh, you do face that. Um, the, the person who's listening to this show, they're, you know, they're, they're startups, they're entrepreneurs, they're business people, they're solopreneurs that are listening and getting tips from a gentlemen like yourself. What would you say if, and I like lists of three, so I'm gonna want three answers. What would you say are the things that, that hard charging, and you saw these business people in your practice, you know, these guys are coming in, you're like, oh no, I see what they're doing. What are the three things as, from your years of practice, and, and you're an obvious expert in this, that we should be thinking about when we're 35 and 40, so that we're gonna be able to enjoy our grandchildren as we get older? Well, for everybody, there's an evolution of thinking throughout life as you look at the time that's ahead, which seems to be infinite when you're a child, and the time that's ahead when you're in your 60s and 70s, where you realize there's only so much time available, and you start seeing everybody around you seems to be getting younger and younger, (laughs) which is an extraordinarily frustrating thing to observe. Uh, And then you start losing friends who are about your same age or some of them younger. And you start realizing uh, there is something that is absolutely impenetrable that's coming. And if you take the best possible care of your health by doing all the right things, you might live longer. But as we have just seen with uh, the recent loss of Doug Herthel, for example, the the veterinarian uh, doctor, horse veterinarian doctor in San Inez, who lived a fabulous life. He contracted medical challenges that made his life very difficult, and there was nothing he did to make that happen. It just happened, as it does for so many people. 
And so when these things happen, we have in Santa Barbara, we have physicians who make house calls, some of them. Uh, they are the godsend to these people who are challenged by these kinds of forces. When the understanding of impending mortality is suddenly there before them. We have the hospice organization, which is fabulously helpful with great, caring, intelligent hospice nurses. We have the Visiting Nurses Association, which is just fabulous, along with Serenity House, which brings people to some time of great comfort and serenity, as the name would imply, uh, before they die. Um, almost all of the patients in this book did die eventually. I made house calls on many of them. I was involved in their care in the hospital and throughout because I'm a primary care internal medicine doc. So all aspects, including their family life, and then seeing the surrounding things about their lives that made a difference would not be three. There'd be about eight of them. Uh, the uh, amount of money somebody has makes a difference. If they're impoverished, it's, it's much more difficult. The physician and the quality of the physician, the willingness of their physician to make a house call mm. and to treat them with the kind of attention and respect that they deserve is critical. The religion they might have, which brings them the comfort of knowing what the future will be after they expire, is something that brings a great deal of comfort to them while they're still here. So some of the people, uh, when I was up at uh, St. Francis Medical Center, I took care of several of the sisters of St. Francis there, and um, some of them died along the way, but they never looked at it with fear because they were so confident that the, the future and the hereafter would be a good thing. The uh, family that's around somebody, the amount of family support is critical. The state of mind of the patient, whether they're depressed or whether they're intelligent, whether they're uh, plagued with uh, the various things that make people make bad decisions, those are the kinds of things that can create some increased problems when mortality is coming. And the age of a patient, the uh, patients who are in their 60s or 50s or sometimes in their 30s, as I have a couple of people in this book, who are facing this kind of thing. The tragedy of a early demise is something that is so greatly much more challenging than for somebody who's in their 90s and they say, well, I have lived a very full life. And then the accomplishments in life play a strong role because that's the fulfillment. If you live life, you would like to be uh, pleased with the outcome of those years of work or whatever you've done the grandchildren that are there, the sometimes great-grandchildren who represent the future are the great inspiration of those people. So those are about the eight or nine things that make a difference. So I've divided the book into chapters that identify those kinds of things and in a real-life settings of how it is to try to plan some of these things, or at least when you're in your 30s, to be thinking about these things are very important to making the future years much better than they otherwise would be, not just for impending mortality, but for the pleasures of life. So I have the occasional case in the book where I'm in the emergency room and the ambulance, I'm screaming in and somebody who is maybe 55 or 60 has a ruptured aortic aneurysm, for example, and he's dropping his blood pressure and he's screaming, don't let me die, don't let me die, don't let me die. We're doing everything we can for him. 
I get in the elevator with him, and on the way up to surgery, he dies. And so the nurse and I are trying to do a code blue in the elevator, and I spent an hour on that one particular case coming out of the elevator with the anesthesiologists and surgeons around, and they never had a chance to even begin operating on him. He's screaming, don't let me die, until he died suddenly, and uh, I was not able to stop it. So the unexpected mortality is something that should be in everybody's mind, as we've seen in other settings, such as with automobile accidents and uh, uh, violence of all kinds. So we uh, live our lives and try to not let any of those things happen, but they're important in surviving mortality as well. So those are the uh, those are the overall viewpoints that come out in this book, addressing all of these different elements. So back to your question, for a 35-year-old, it would be to find a woman that you can love and who will love you for your lifetime and maybe produce some children along the way because the children increasingly represent the future and then raise those kids as well as you possibly can and then hope that they meet someone where you can have grandchildren coming and the family, the family, the family is so important. My wife is Japanese, Keiko. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. And she has been... uh, I met her when I was on the submarine, actually. She has been uh, the star of my life in so many ways, and she and I are closer now than ever because it always seems to be we get closer as the years go by, as close as we were right in the very beginning. So I was very lucky that she was the girl I asked to dance in the Hawaiian Hilton Village one day when our submarine came into port. I've been to the Hawaiian Hilton Village. The Garden Bar was what this place was called. It's no longer (laughs) in there. They took out the bar. They put in a swimming pool. But uh, if you uh, seek out the the right person and you have a great deal of good luck, and then you marry somebody who brings you the satisfaction and fulfillment, which is a very difficult thing to do. I, I see no way of guaranteeing any result like that with any relationship. Uh, when people become rich and famous and accomplished or whatever, the, the relationships frequently seem to fall away. Uh, Keiko put me through medical school by teaching during all those years. When we became financially in better shape, uh, there was still, <clears throat> still the same wonderful thing that was there when we had no money at all. And so she is uh, just ever increasingly important in my life. And to find that is really an important element in the whole process of surviving mortality. When I, when I look at this, this issue, I think of my worldview is three things. One is it's um, fitness, it's my nutrition and wellness. And the things that you spoke about there felt like they were all wellness related, which we tend to, you know, it's the the spirit, body, mind, all of those things, the importance of family, all of that. Um, where does where does fitness and nutrition fit into your worldview of this? Do you do you feel like, um, or or does it kind of not? This is the the truth. Does it kind of not matter that your genes? Uh, and let's take let's take unexpected death off off the table for a second. My 98 year old grandmother, who is robust and vibrant, and it, is that just good genes? It's a combination of so many things. Genes, of course, plays a role. There are so many inherited conditions that will shorten life or create problems along the way. But apart from that, there is the setting of what is the trauma to the body over the years from 
inadequate nutrition, from excessive uh, activities, sunlight activities, for example, for the wearing down, the smoking activities, uh, and with the nicotine addiction uh, matched together with alcohol addiction or with drug addiction, all of those things tear the body down and accelerate aging. It's been my thought that somebody who is 50 years old and has been a heavy smoker uh, frequently will appear to be maybe 10 to 15 years older. And it's not just the appearance, it's the, um, the aging of the body, the atherosclerosis components, the probability of heart attacks, and all of these things are much further down the line. So avoiding those, I don't know how you can, there are so many ways that have been tried to keep younger people from getting into the addictive substances and addictive patterns. Uh, and we're seeing all of, to this day, we're seeing all of the changes with smoking now to create these uh, flavored components that will uh, lock in the nicotine addiction at an early age and create the problems that they can't imagine 20 years down the line where they can't get away from it. So uh, the fitness part of it, the muscular fitness, uh, it's been my observation when I was a, a young man surfing uh, and doing a lot of physical activities, uh, the more of those things I would do, the stronger I would get. When I got to be about 65 to 68, maybe 70, I discovered that the more physical activity I do, the tireder I get. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> seem to gain strength. I just get more tired. But it's important anyway because if it's not there, there the balance between food consumption, weight gain, which plays so many roles, in uh, disease processes that deteriorate quality of life uh, starts to become more and more of a factor. And the, uh, the obesity issues in this country right now are profound, and a large part of that is because of a relatively sedentary lifestyle. So physical activity of at least a mile and a half walk a day, just, if you can do, do it. Just do a walk. It's, it's critical. And it's yeah. so much more than just that. You don't burn off the calories. You do burn off calories, but you don't burn off the calories to the point where that alone will keep your weight down. What you do is you change your perceived need for food, where the changing of the brain from exercise, the neurochemistry in the brain that creates a feeling of, uh, they call it what, runner's high or exercise euphoria, or some people feel good. They don't need food to make them feel good, and the inclination to eat is a little bit reduced. So exercise, along with a reduction in caloric consumption without it being a big dietary thing, which so often virtually always never really works on its own, is I think the answer to that whole matter of avoiding the obesity that creates so much detriment in later life. So we, you cup, went on a couple of different things there, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking of O words now. Uh, obesity just feels like that's a, a huge, it's, it's at epidemic proportions, I'm going to say. I am not a scientist. I'm not a data guy. So I, but I just, I watch TV and I go in airports and I'm like, how is this happening? But I think the other one is the opioid crisis that we have now. And what, what's your take on that? Because it, you know, I've, I've listened a lot to that and studied that quite a bit. And you know, I don't know, it was just great marketing on uh, the part of, uh, you know, the drug companies and big pharma and all of that kind of stuff. But as on the end of that, as the doctor, where are you at on well, that? Well, it's, uh, it's more complicated than it seems on its face. The issue of excessive opioid use is something that comes back down to the process of how these people get the 
drugs in the first place and why these people are looking for the drugs in the first place before they did addiction even occurs mixed together with a absent understanding of the power of the addiction that there are some things that come into the mind you cannot get rid of you can't stop that compelling need addiction in that sphere is so powerful and they uh, most people don't understand that so at the beginning there is a doctor who prescribes it when he prescribes it he wants the patient to not suffer to have less pain patients maybe had some surgery or whatever and so he gives them the opioids, which back in the old days, we used to give maybe five or six days to help get them through. But as the doctor's practices are increasingly overwhelmed with volume, the detriment of having calls from patients complaining of pain and that effect on the practice is so powerful that they will prescribe a great deal more pain medication, opioids, then would be reasonably necessary. So the doctors are at fault, but the system is also at fault because the doctors are being pressured to try to cut down a little on the volume of calls coming in from all the people who have pain, which is a whole lot of people, especially for the surgeons. And so they cover them with a blanket of opioids that'll Mm. keep the calls from coming. So I've asked the emergency room physicians at Cottage, how can you tell when a patient comes in and asks for opioids, how can you tell if they're oh. really having pain or if they're really addicted. And you know what their answer was? Surprised what? me. Their answer is you can't tell. We can't tell. We don't know. We don't really have any way of measuring pain. They describe pain. It's a highly subjective phenomenon. I've studied that. They describe it yeah. and they describe it and they say, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. But the magnitude of pain is affected by the dependence on opioids where when you are so dependent on something, you want it so much more that you actually end up with more problems leading you to getting it than otherwise might be the case. So pain for some people is nothing. Pain for other people, free of any opioid use or any surgery or anything. Pain is a highly uh, subjective kind of a thing that some people suffer great pain with small things. Other people have virtually no pain with great things. So in the middle of all of that, right. there is uh, a dependence factor that can build when opioids are transiently used. So it's a very complex thing. I don't really know what the solution is for it, except it's a great tragedy in what's happening in our country right now. Uh, it should start with the doctors stopping the volume of prescribing of opioids and I believe that's already being done and the licensing systems in the different states are addressing that and it's an important thing to do that certainly California they're they're uh, I'm still licensed to practice medicine and I have to take CME courses on pain control still even though you're retired I am Uh, no kidding yeah they gave me my choice when I retired (laughs) I I said I want to continue with my license they said okay doctor you've got uh, two choices we'll send you a license for $25 or we send you a license for $870 Uh, which would you like and I said well I'll take the $25 one please thank you and they said certainly but on the license it says cannot charge for medical care so it says right oh, on the license, can I no charge kidding. for medical care? Listener, he's pulling and, out his wallet and, and we're so, going to see. I didn't know doctors so, actually, you have a light. I, can I, I never even license? heard of anything like that. Look but at that's that. what's on the license. And so I can practice. I can prescribe opioids. No payment for service allowed. But nobody can be charged. 
<laughs> wow. So it's it's a great thing because I didn't I realize there was you're a card carrying doctor. I, I love it. That's uh, it's, I, it doesn't have it. There's no uh, photo on it. No, nope. that's interesting. No, they, uh, they all they doctors have, have that. All doctors have that. You have to have, have that to practice medicine in California. Yeah, it's a state state licensure thing. Um, I, I've got so many uh, so many questions in here, uh, but I want to go back to not talking about the book, but talking about. Um, the practice of writing. Uh, I think, uh, as we you know said earlier, there's so many books. These agents are just inundated, and so people are thinking, I can, you know, I'm going to write a book, or they're being told you need to write a book to legitimize yourself. It's the you know it's the ten dollar business card. It's you know all of, all of that kind of stuff. How did you fit writing books? And you've been doing this, as you said, for your, you know mostly your whole life. How do you fit that into the workflow of being a busy doctor? And let's add on to that. We've, we've already self-admitted that you do um, house calls. And, and I think you're never not a doctor. You know, you're, you may not be on call, but that doesn't mean I can't get a hold of you if you're my That's doctor, right? right? Um, Immediately. Yeah. You no, know, exactly. We've got two doctors in our improv troupe, and they're, they're dedicated. I mean, I, you know, hats off, right? We, we that's important to us, you know, as patients to know that. Where did you fit writing into that? The uh, writing and the time it takes to write is, um, is an education in itself because anybody can write anything. You can start okay. <laughs> typing and uh, what does it take to have a keyboard in front of you and start putting down words. What I got started with was if I felt like I had a story to tell, that was the critical component. Yeah. I had something to say, not that I lived some life and I had some family things and experiences and new understandings that maybe most people don't understand. or anything. None of that was there. It was, what are the experiences of life that would be interesting for other people to know about, which they could not find out about otherwise? And so I write the book, Final Diagnosis, to tell about the one month I had on the jail ward at LA County Hospital right after mm. coming out of UCLA Med School, mm. where I graduated from this great medical school. How old are you? I'm, uh, I got into med school when I was 25, 26 actually when I started. So I was 27 or so. And then suddenly the first month I'm on the jail ward on the 13th floor of LA County Hospital, taking care of all these prisoners with my support team being myself <laughs> and one other intern who was with me, both of us fresh out of medical school, taking care of all of the, all of the prisoners on the 13th floor and all of the stuff that comes in. Ironically all, being the 13th floor. Uh, yeah, with, <laughs> nobody else wanted to be on the 13th floor. So uh, the prisoners I took care of were so, there were so many things that were unbelievable that I just couldn't believe, I couldn't, really even conceive, uh, like the man who came in with hyperthermia, malignant hyperthermia, where his, that? his temperature kept climbing higher and higher. He was 105 when the jail doctor sent him over. We gave him Tylenol. We tried to find the source of his infection. We tried to cool him down. We covered him with alcohol and turned fans on him. His temperature went up to 106. We poured more alcohol on him, tried to turn the fan to higher speeds. He went up to 106.5 and had a respiratory arrest. So we intubated him, 
I knew how to intubate because they taught me that in medical school. Yay. <laughs> so we had a machine breathing 100% oxygen into him. He went to 107 and had a cardiac arrest. Oh, my God. So the first thing you do with a cardiac arrest is you pull out the paddles, put them on the chest, and electroconvert them back to a, a better rhythm. Well, the spark from the paddles the ignited alcohol. the alcohol, oh, and his Jesus. whole body caught on fire. Oh, and then, of course, we had oxygen coming as the tube melted right. down in his mouth. This is what um, this is what being an intern was like, and this shocking kind of experience, which is never written up anywhere. But that's where Final Diagnosis came in, and so that book, Final Diagnosis, all the prisoners in that—it's a fiction book of two doctors trying to survive their month on the jail ward. But all of the prisoners in there were real prisoners, the ones I took care of. Yeah. So the shock of those experiences changes doctors and I creates a, uh, a whole new understanding of what, it's all, what this area is that nobody knows about. Nobody's invited to come up and take a tour through the jail ward. I'm pretty sure that's, there's no Nobody's line. invited to come onto a submarine for a mission of espionage. Nobody looks into the doctor's mind and understands what he is feeling as these patients that he's looked after for 20 or 30 years are suddenly facing their individual mortality. And then with the Rogue Captain story coming down the line. What's the title of that? Rogue Captain. Got it. The story of a commanding officer of a nuclear submarine who receives a call from his daughter screaming at night that, Daddy, they're killing everybody on our yacht. They're coming for us. Can you help us? Can you save us? And the line goes dead. He is the captain of a submarine. And the question is asked, then, how far would the commanding officer this father go to save the life of his daughter if he was in fact in charge of this submarine. And so what he does, he becomes, although he is a renowned uh, captain of uh, submarines, he at 3.30 in the morning, he and 11 other men, along with one woman who's trapped on board, take the submarine from Pearl Harbor and head for the South China Sea to try to save her life, to try to find her and to save her they think they know about where she is. So it's, it's a mission from a rogue captain. Which, and this is the story now I have just found out in the last year. I've worked on this three years now for its finality to come together, and it'll be available fairly soon. But I learned the Navy wants this story blocked. They do not want... They oh, it's a true to, story. They tried to... Fictional it's life. fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a story of a captain stealing a nuclear submarine to save the life of his daughter. And for any of us who are fathers of daughters, and I am a father of a fabulous daughter, as is our co-host. How far would we go to save her life if she was in danger? And the answer for me is I would go to any extent possible. Do whatever you could. If I had tools at hand, including a nuclear submarine, I'd go get it. So that's what the story is. His father is driven by this love he has for his daughter to try to find her and save her with these 11 other men and this one woman. (laughs) So are you going to get visited by four people from D.C.? (laughs) It's fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And you can say anything. I don't give out any secrets in there that uh, there's a lot of submarine activity because when they come when he comes face to face with the terrorists off Palawan Island in the Philippines in the South China Sea it's a, um, a very intense activity with the three seals trying to get in to find her and save her from where she is um, 
so there's there's a lot of activity there using the elements that submarines regularly use. But uh, I was not on the submarines that did those kinds of things. Sure. So everything I got came from the Internet, and I can't say I'm a primary source of anything. That was the problem for the men who visited me on the spy You were a primary source. I'm a primary source. Right. They said right. the hunt for Red October came, and they found a, a 140 secrets that were revealed in that book they didn't want to have come out. But they couldn't start pinpointing it and trying to shut it down because it would shed light on some of those secrets, especially the ones they really did not want to have come out. So they ended up just blending into the whole story and uh, it came out. But it was fiction and he was, uh, what, insurance salesman, I think, wasn't he? Yep. Well, I was a reactor operator and I'm telling a story of espionage. Man, that's a primary source if there ever was one. This is the only story that ever came out about the Halibut's activities. It went on to other great things. We're having a submarine reunion coming up in uh, October of this year with some of the greatest men I've ever, I've ever known in my lifetime. Fabulously quality men, including the commanding officer of our submarine. So the rogue captain has in its fictionalized component Gary Moore. Mr. Moore was our captain. Uh, he lives in so, with his wife here. So as I'm looking at your face, you, you it was clear that you had a picture of him when you were writing. Now I'm gonna wonder as a as an author, do you? This sounds like it's a, a movie I can go see on a Friday night. This <laughs> like I would love to go see that movie, right? So this when one. you're writing, a does that cross your mind, and b if it does, who's in the lead role? One of my patients was Bob Caleri, who wrote all of the MASH series oh. uh, way back, and uh, Captain Kangaroo as well. His son is Michael Caleri, who is uh, a screenwriter in Los Angeles, who is excited about this story as well. Oh. There has been a direction to take this to the screen, and that direction it sounds be, exciting. It'll be fulfilled when this book comes out, I oh, believe. Oh, nice. Well, so, yes, sir, this will yeah. be something that I think will come out on the screen eventually. That would be, be, be fun to see that story, yeah, like that whole arc. How long has it been arc? since we've seen a, a, a story of a, a man stealing a submarine to save the life of his daughter? Gosh, I don't know. It's, I, I can't think of Taken one. Taken comes a little bit into that sphere, but without the uh, elements beyond uh, the hero's, the father's uh, individual efforts. Well, Doctor, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, uh, you never, I never know where these shows are going to go. As you said, we don't, we don't know one another. We just, uh, I want to give, I want to thank Eldon Edwards, uh, who is a, a listener of the show. Eldon suggested he said you've got to get him on the show, and we made that happen. And and thank you very much. And uh, what I will do is I will put links uh, in the show notes to all of the books. Uh, if you'll send me the upcoming one or any, you know, people will hear this and we'll, this, this show comes out in a little while, we can add that as well uh, so as Thank people you can listen that. to that. And probably the easiest link is just rogercdunham.com, which it. Is, my, is my website. And all four books are listed on there. Perfect. The that, that makes it easy. Still on. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. Uh, so thank you very much. I'm uh, struggling with the decision to write a book now. Uh, I do podcasting, which I love, and we have these conversations. And so I'm I'm thinking about um, 
there's something to your point of taking live experiences that you've had and, and turning them into a book. I just am, my, I bring my, wash myself into thinking that people don't read anymore, uh, <laughs> that they listen. And so I, I think I'd probably write an audiobook. <laughs> Well, there has been a, a surge in audiobooks for that reason, I right. believe. Right, no, exactly. But if right. you have something inside of you that would bring out to the public information that they would not have any other way of knowing, and it's been something that's been inspiring to you, that would be step one. Step two is to understand that your first draft is going to be just god-awful. <laughs> I mean, even Hemingway said that in more explicit terms. Yes. Uh, you go over it and over it and over it, and every time you go over it, there's going to be changes. You just uh, trying to get the written word exactly as it should be is the biggest challenge of writers, short of getting it out there and marketing it and getting publicity. That's uh, by far the biggest challenge for all writers. Uh, I am not the writer in this room. My partner, Patrick, is absolutely a thousand times more readable than I am. That's not, thank you, Mark. Yeah, you we'll collaborate you, oh the my two gosh. of you together. Well, we do. We do on other shows. He actually writes the show notes and the abstracts for other Good. shows because he can take and synthesize that conversation to something that is that I, I do not have that gift. And, Very complex uh, process to do it that. It really is, and I and it takes creativity. I'm not also not the artist uh, in the house, so um, Well, Mark, let me say how art. much I appreciate you inviting me here. I had no idea what we were ever going to be talking Yay, about. Yay, our secret <laughs> but, is uh, safe. You sort of brought out uh, some things that I didn't know I was going to even be discussing today, and it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you so much. The At the end of the show, our, our frequent listeners, as Eldon is a listener, know that um, as you also know as a writer, what's the most important part of this is the title, right? Because that title communicates everything. And, and on the internets, um, the title also contributes to search ability and all of that. So we pay attention to titles here. Mm -hmm. uh, coming up on 200 shows now, titles are everything for us. And we give, the, uh, we give you permission to play uh, with a title for this conversation. Okay. So what would we? What do you think we would well, here's, call here's our last thing. forty-five minutes? For the first two books, the book I submitted to Penguin Press was called Jail Ward, and they came back and said, "No, we don't like Jail Ward. We would rather have Final Diagnosis." And I said, "Well, wait, didn't Arthur Haley do that? Isn't that his book?" And they said, "No, it's out of print now. We can use it." <laughs> so it came. So I have no. There is no debate because I'm not allowed to contribute beyond my observation so it came out as final diagnosis and then my book by the naval in, with the naval institute press publishing it it was in the domain of the golden dragon because where the soviet submarine was was in a part of the ocean that submariners called the domain of the golden dragon so i have in the gold, domain of the golden dragon and they came back with wait a minute this sounds like it's a drug running operation <laughs> in this domain of uh, what smuggling or and they said we we want to change it to spy sub <laughs> a, a deep uh, s deep water search of the pacific ocean <laughs> subtitle so i said okay you can do that so the surviving mortality on my treadmill i popped up with that name this is these people trying to survive mortality it's a conflict in terms combined together but then with a subtitle, Life, Death, and the Doctor, it brings people to an understanding what this yep. is all about. And then these graphic artist people from Texas did a fabulous job. So the Rogue Captain thing came along, and I changed it to The Captain because it's a story of the captain struggling with his love for his daughter and the tragedy of her loss and trying to save her. And 
the sense after looking at that for a few months was that this was not exciting enough. This, this doesn't really bring you to the compelling element of the story that this guy is rogue. And with the Navy trying to stop it and block it, as they've done from the Naval Institute Press, they've tried to block this. They said, this goes against the grain. Captains don't steal submarines. You know? Oh, this so, one did. So, they, uh, so the part of the marketing of this is going to be the book the Navy tried to stop. So I'm not <laughs> going to change your title. Okay. You get to whatever you want to call this is what we're going to call it. What do we call this show? Okay. You cover such a spectrum of experiences into the lives and the hearts and souls of the of uh, Santa Barbara, of the people of Santa Barbara. That's a great subtitle. So now I need like three or four. You, they got you from uh, the, the Golden Dragon down to two words. So eh, three or four. <laughs> how it really is, how it is, what it is because you're seeking the truth of how people feel, uh, the truth as they see it. So the, the truth as I see it would be another possibility. I, um, I'm going with that. How, are you, how about you, Patrick? What do you think? Yeah, it's in there. You've got it. You'll play with it. Doctor, thank you so much. I appreciate My you pleasure. coming in and spending uh, the time with us, have this conversation. Audience, uh, I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press. If you're interested in your own podcast or partnering with us, drop us a note to partner at 805connect.com. Patrick, um, how can our eager listener, and we've talked about this in our uh, earlier show, those who've listened to over 100 episodes. Yeah, we're, as we bump up against 200 episodes, if wow. you've listened to over 100 episodes of this show, then it is your obligation to go out there and write us a review. Uh, yes. Secondarily, I would say, or, or pri perhaps primarily, I would say uh, support our guests. Go out and, uh, if, yes. especially a, an author uh, like the doctor here, uh, go buy all of the books. Yes. There, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was cheating over here a little bit and reading up on on uh, on Spy Sub, and uh, it's it's more than what he is. He is downplaying the story. It is it is pivotal in in uh, the Soviet American relations of the 1970s and 80s. Wow, pivotal. Wow, uh, it just went on to the top of my list as well. Um, and I'd love to hear from you, Eldon. Thank you so much. Uh, it's it's uh, notes from folks like you that introduced us to people there's just no way we would ever meet. Uh, makes our life richer as a result and makes for really great podcast guests. If you have someone that you would love to have us interview, have on the show, drop me a line at mark at 805connect.com. Thank you in advance. And until next time. Could I, uh, is, could I add one final thank you to Eldon? Yes, sure. please. For his bringing me here. Uh, Ellen is a remarkable man. He's been this a patient true. for many years. Oh, okay. And uh, he is—he uh, and his wife are both remarkable people. So I have a great deal of respect for him and admiration for all of the things that he is able to see and do. And now my thanks to him for allowing me to be on your show. Well, perfect. There you go. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.